Our scripture this morning is Psalms 79. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beast of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together as we turn to this psalm. Uh, Father, uh, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Uh, One of the greatest graces of the Lord, we had this quote a few weeks ago, is uh, corporate worship, our time together as the people of God. And within that, we see all kinds of other graces that we get to experience. So we're experiencing part of the grace of God this morning in in the presence of God's people with the word open in front of us. And, And the grace of God can be seen in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of places. But one of the ways that that God's grace is displayed and known is probably missed by most of us as we came in here this morning. One of the ways that God shows us his grace and gives us his grace is through songs like we see in Psalm 79. Songs that are given to the people of God, put on the lips of the people of God for the really hard times. In other words, God is giving us this grace to say that no matter what the circumstance and situation is, no matter how dire and how bad it looks, and Psalm 79 looks pretty bad, that God doesn't want his people to be silent or or to be cut off from relationship and directing their lives to him. That is such a grace and kindness for us that God gives us in his word. And what Psalm 79 does is it gives us this corporate lament, this, this congregational appeal to God that teaches us 
how to sing, how to pray. That's what the Psalms are meant to do. They give us words to sing and pray. They give us words and teach us how to sing and pray. And they do it in the most difficult times. And here's what we see in Psalm 79. He gives us this way to pray with this dire circumstance and situation that's in line with the character of God, that, that is praying for the purpose and the sake of the name of God that, that ends with this entrusting everything to God. So we're, we're praying and to pray and sing in the hard times in line with the character of God for the sake of the name of God and entrusting all of our lives to the same God. This psalm, Psalm 79, is ascribed to Asaph. He would have been a contemporary of David. David appointed him to kind of direct the temple choir during his time. And God's people, you can see through the life of David and Asaph, just that name itself, God's people were people who were diligent to organize themselves as a people who would be a singing and praying people together. And, and so they had some organization to this. They were working to make sure that their lives individually and their lives together as the people of God were all directed to God. All of life lived under God, before his face, before his, under his reign and his rule. And that's what God wants. That they're doing things that are in line with the very heart and purposes of God. That he wants them to be a people who would sing to him and pray to him and direct all of their lives. Again, no matter the circumstance, directed to him. He wants his people to live all of life before him in relationship to him. It's merciful then that God's people have a psalm for almost every occasion. To pray and to sing. Individually and together. Now, one theologian called the Psalms, it's an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. There's not one part that's left out in the book of Psalms when you take them together. All will be touched by different Psalms here. And, and 12 of these Psalms bear Asaph's name. Now, quickly, Israel was a people who God chose out of all the nations of the earth. And they were people who were enslaved and God rescued them from their slavery to Egypt brings them out through the sea and covers their enemies behind them, takes them into the wilderness where they rebel against God, reject God, but he still stays with them and in their midst, he leads them all the way to the promised land where they again, we see really quickly once they get into the promised land that they don't live this, this life that's before God in a way that brings him honor and glory all the time. That quickly we move to the judges where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and it's, it's a catastrophe in the land. But God delivers for them, gives them a king. They want a king, but not in the way that God wants a king. They want a king that's just like the nations, and that doesn't turn out well for them in King Saul. But God anoints and gives him another king, King David, a man after God's own heart. And, and David, when he brings the, the ark into Jerusalem, the city of the people of God, that's when he appoints Asaph to, to kind of lead the choir in our singing and praying together. But it's not long after that where we quickly see that David's kingdom gives way to Solomon and very quickly after Solomon, the kingdom divides. Ten tribes go north, two tribes stay in Jerusalem and in the south, and we have a, a people of God split and divided, and not just in terms of their tribes, but in terms of their loyalties. Their loyalties are all over the map, not to the one true living God always, and not even primarily often, but to other gods. And so this divided kingdom causes all kinds of problems. And, and when this divided kingdom started, in, in 1 Kings 14, we see an episode that might capture the, the setting of Psalm 79, when the people of God, Rehoboam, one of Solomon's sons, is king in Jerusalem. He is, his heart is for not for God, but for idols. And he starts worshiping idols. And so God brings up Shishak from Egypt and he 
ransacks and strips the temple bare. That's possible that that's the setting of Psalm 79, but even if that's not the setting of Psalm 79, we could see maybe the, the Babylonian invasion as part of this setting too. Once the kingdom was divided, God sent prophets to warn them about their sin, to call them back into covenant faithfulness toward their God who has loved them, redeemed them, made covenant with them, and given them this, His law, but they continue to rebel and walk in their sinfulness and wickedness before God. And so God, after warning and warning and warning about bringing judgment upon them, brings in the 580s the Babylonians, a pagan nation, a nation that serves no God at all to destroy them. Nebuchadnezzar walks to that place and they tear down the walls of Jerusalem They ransack the temple, they kill thousands, they take captives back with them to Babylon. And it's that kind of perspective that's captured in Psalm 79. I mean, it's as bad as it could get. Psalm 79 is written from a perspective of one who sees all this has happened and is kind of left behind in the midst of all that. Likely a person who had been gutted. Just don't know what to think about all the things my eyes have taken in and can see And in the midst of this, he complains. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Nations, nations, God, that you drove out in front of us as you led us into the promised land. Those nations, the nations you told us not to to go after or be like because these are nations that are wicked nations. Those kind of nations, they've come into your promised land. Nations that, that rage against you. Psalm 2, right? God, remember that? That's the perspective we're supposed to have. Those nations that are raging against you and think that they are greater than you and they're going to set up their kings and who cares what you do. Those nations have come into your people and they've left Jerusalem in ruins. They've come in. That they, they have come into the inheritance that you have. Lord, the inheritance in Psalm 78, verse 71, it says that Israel is his inheritance. This is a people, a place. They've defiled this temple, which again, for, for God and for his people, this is massive. This is a holy place. And not only is there a holy place in the temple, there's a most holy place where, where God's presence uniquely dwells in the midst of his people. They've come into that temple. That's where they've come, as he's saying. And they've desecrated it and defiled it. And they left Jerusalem in ruins. And further, he continues, They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. The structure is telling us something in these first few verses. We have in verses 1, 2, and 3, three lines of three, basically. If you look through the Psalms, a lot of times they, they, are, they use a lot of parallelism. Right? Lots of groups of two, like verses 6 and 7, you see this really well. Pour out your anger on the nations that don't know you, and on the kingdoms, there's A, and then here's A too, right? On the kingdoms that don't call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. There's, there's a lot of doubling, right? Parallel. And in verses 1 through 3, it goes A, B, C. So if you have A and B, that might tell you a lot. They might emphasize something there. It might take you a little bit further there. But when you have C, you might need to think like something's going on here. And you have that not once, not twice, but three times in these first three verses. In other words, I think what even the structure of these first three verses is trying to communicate to us is how atrocious this situation is. And if that weren't enough, then the descriptive words will pretty well do it. 
They've given bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh to be eaten by beasts, poured out blood like water. This is a horrific scene. And instead of Israel and the people of God being a light to the nations, being a place in Jerusalem where the nations want to flock because they notice something different about this people and about their God and coming up there to worship. Instead of being a place to come to worship, instead of Israel and this people being a blessing to all the nations of the earth, this people is lying dead around Jerusalem, their bodies being eaten by animals. That's the picture. And so verse 4, he continues and says, We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by all those around us. You think about these taunts at the time, they probably would have been effective. Hey, where's your God? What kind of people are you? What kind of God is your God? Like, you're all laying around, around here. We've done all that. Where's your God in the midst of that? They would have been effective taunts for the people. Like verse 10, they could be saying, hey, where is your God now? We just destroyed your city. We came into your temple. We defiled your temple and nothing has happened. And look at your situation. Psalm 2 and the perspective of Psalm 2 of the Lord holding them in derision is buried under the rubble of the walls of Jerusalem at this point. At least that's how it would appear. And verses 1 through 4, they just give us the situation. Here's the problem. Here's the circumstance. Here's the complaint of God's people in the midst of this horrific scene and this atrocity that's all around them. And what's incredible in the midst of verses 1 through 4 in all of this is that God is giving them in these very verses words to sing and pray in the midst of something like that. Here's a horrific scene and here's words to sing in the middle of it. Here's atrocities all around, and here's how you as a people can direct your prayers to God. Now, maybe it was written in 1 Kings chapter 14. Maybe that's kind of the setting. If you look in 1 Kings 14, this is when, again, they have turned away from God. Verses 24 or 25, this is King Rehoboam. And Shishak of Egypt, he came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. It's like all that Solomon and David had built up, it just got stripped bare. Could be that setting when Egypt came. Could have been the, the 580s when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came. If it wasn't that, the original setting, they could have sung it then. And if they couldn't have sung it then, what about when Antiochus Epiphanes comes, this Greek king and ruler before the birth of Christ, and we're seeing this Greek man come in, and what does he do? He desecrates and defiles the temple again. Could have sung it then. Three different occasions that we could point to. There's more atrocities in the history of Israel as well. But God, even in the midst of horrific situations, gave his people words to direct to him. Things to sing. Ways to kind of complain and, and talk about the atrocity of the situation with him and to him. And this is gracious. It's gracious because God's people, not only do they experience this, but God's people are told to expect situations and treatment like this, right? We look to the New Testament and Jesus tells his followers, if they treated me this way, they're going to treat you this way. And how did they treat Jesus? Well, he was, a, he was a man who was despised. He was acquainted with griefs. He wasn't always treated well. And he says, if they treated me this way, they'll treat you this way. In this world, you're going to have trouble, he tells his followers. 
Paul says if you're going to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. Hebrews chapter 11 says, hey, there were some of the faithful that they were closing the mouths of lions and they were seeing all these great things done and there were others that were thrown to the lions and they were devoured by them. That's the Hebrews 11 faithful. Or we could look to Revelation chapter 11 and see a picture of this as well. In Revelation 11 verse 7 It says, and when they'd finished their testimony, these are two faithful witnesses, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where the Lord was crucified. Sounds like familiar language. For three and a half days, some of the people in the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them, and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry taunt them, right, and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. That's just a picture that Revelation is painting for. This is what's going to happen to God's people if they're going to be faithful. Expect this kind of stuff. Now, it's likely hard for us to imagine a Psalm 79 kind of situation where we're seeing dead bodies around us and being eaten by the animals. That's an atrocious thing and kind of a, a horrific picture to imagine for us. And luckily, by the grace of God, that, that scene is somewhat far removed from us personally now. May it always be so, but it probably won't always be so. And when we think about that, we need Psalms like Psalm 79. And when we take in the, the picture of what's going on around the globe, we have family, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus across the world who know this kind of situation as their daily life. Think of Sudan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Nigeria, India, where, where specifically Christians and churches are being targeted for their faith and, and being sought out and, and attacked, destroyed, taunted by people who think that their God is no God. God's people are being targeted and brutally treated in many places, likely leaving some in the situation of what Psalm 79 kind of describes in verses 1 through 4. And they, like someone who has the experience of Psalm 79 verses 1 through 4 originally, might feel a bit perplexed and flabbergasted about what they're seeing around them. Can this really be happening? But God, in the midst of that, has given them a song to sing together. A prayer to pray together. I like what one pastor says when he says that there is never a situation that the church faces for which there is not a word of God in time of need. If we should find ourselves in these circumstances, God has already written the song that we will sing. And when we lift up these words, not having experienced these same experiences, let us remember that we do have brothers and sisters around the world who are under these circumstances today. And let us sing these words for them, with them. And God's word is excellent. And he supplies the words to say, the prayers to pray, the songs to sing in every situation of the church from age to age. And make no mistake, God wants us in the midst of every situation in the church from age to age to be a people who, in no matter the perplexing situation or the difficulty, the horror of the circumstance, to be a people who direct our lives to him, who pray to him and pray to Him together, who sing to Him and sing to Him together. Now, stating the situation in verses 1 through 4, it's like it is gracious for God to give us these words so we can direct life in the middle of something like verses 1 through 4 to Him, but that doesn't take out the problem, does it? It doesn't solve anything. Now we've just stated it before God. It doesn't take away the reality or the questions. And that's where the psalmist goes in verse 5. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will you 
Will your jealousy burn like fire? A fire that's, like, you think about fire, never quenched. It doesn't seem like it's ever going to stop. And so that's why the, how long? But this question comes packed with so many things that are implied within it. Right? And you say to the Lord in the midst of a verses 1 through 4 circumstance and, and complaint, you're, you're looking to the Lord and praying how long. You're, you're stating something about God. Like this is a God who is sovereign. He is the one who controls all things. All of life is in his hands. So when I see verses 1 through 4, I can still go to him and ask this question. He sees, he knows, and he's the one who we can call to in the time of trouble. That's what this understanding of this psalm would give us to. How long? It implies that this is a God who is sovereign and that this is a God who can stop it. We have all this going on and we're going to call to you because we trust that you're the only one that can actually do something about it. This is God's people clinging in the midst of a horrific scene and scenario, clinging to some semblance of of Psalm 1 and 2 kind of view of life where, where we know that the blessed way isn't the way of the wicked, it's the way of walking according to what God has told us, where we know that God is, is all, no matter what these other kings are doing, that he has his king and he's going to set him up and he's going to reign and rule. One day he's going to break them and we're going to rejoice and we're going to find our refuge in him. They're clinging to that. We don't know how strongly they're clinging to it, but here they are saying it with this how long. The, the nations around them are raging and they're saying, we're looking to you in the midst of this. How long are you going to let this happen? How long here is more of a question of, of waiting and wrestling than, than doubting. There's some trust attached to it. God has, in the midst of verses 1 through 4, he's gotten their attention. God had given them the law, and he told them the way to live. Psalm 1 says, hey, we know the blessed way. It's the way of walking according to your word, meditating on it day and night. And guess what? They didn't do it. God had given them his word that had revealed his holy character, and they rejected it. He'd warned them of walking in idolatrous living, and they embraced it. And so he sends prophets and they warn again, like, you need to come back to faithfulness. You need to repent for your covenant breaking before this God. Repent or he's going to send judgment. I mean, the prophets aren't the people's favorite to read because they're always talking about judgment. They're kind of downers, right? And they ignored him. And so God sent his judgment. Like verses 1 through 4 kind of judgment that brought all kinds of pain. And guess what happened? He's got their attention here. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, we can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And we do (laughs) at times. But he says, but pain insists upon being attended to. God shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In verses 1 through 4, we see God using judgment, rousing Israel. And what happens when he rouses them? He rouses them to this question of how long. We don't know one another's circumstances fully or what's going on in your life. but, But here's what I think we should say. That if you're in some sort of pain for some reason, here's what you need to do with it. Go to God. He might be rousing you for a purpose, to turn you a little bit more fully and clearly to Him, to see who He is and what He's like and what He wants for your life. Go to God in your pain. Here's what they do. They question, they wrestle, they sing and pray hard stuff here, but it's all directed to God, and that's what He wants. Pain or no pain, that's what He wants. Take all of those wrestlings, all those questions, all those fears, all those doubts, direct them to Him. You see, these questions and this wrestling it's hard stuff that they're dealing with. 
They're all directed to the one that, in, in verse 5, they are implying that this is the one they know can do something about it. And so they say, God, how long will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? These questions, they, they don't reflect that they have some sort of hunch about God. That, like, we, we, we think this might be part of your anger or that you're angry with us or there's jealousy in you. There's not a hunch about God here. When they say, verse 5, and they say, well, why are you going to be angry with us forever? Or is your jealousy going to burn like fire? Is it going to keep going and going? Is it never going to stop? All of those questions are based on the character of God, the character of their known God, a God who's revealed himself. In Exodus chapter 34, this is a key uh, moment for the people of Israel, and a key revelation, a displaying of who God is for them. And so Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passes by Moses, and he kind of, in a sense, he's, he's, he's defining himself for them. Here's who I am. The Lord, the Lord, he's a God merciful and gracious, but don't miss this, don't miss this part, right? Slow to anger. Slow to anger. In verse 14, he says that he's a jealous God. Don't worship other gods, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. So when they're asking the questions of verse 5, they're asking those questions based upon the revealed character of their God. And really, when we look at this anger of God that they're talking about here and experiencing this situation, and the jealousy that they're talking about here and experiencing this situation, these two, anger and jealousy, they go together to give us the right picture of God. See, in context, this anger and this jealousy are his just displeasure at their sin and rebellion. And both his anger and his jealousy are holy. Holy anger, holy jealousy that all come from and flow out of his love. Now, those don't seem like they go together, but they so clearly do. They come from his love, from his love that has been betrayed by them, rejected by them, rebelled against by them, violated by them. They are provoking him, right? His jealousy and love are provoked by anything that would harm or cause a problem with his beloved. And in this situation here, and by the revelation of God, we know God loves this people. He cares deeply for this people. He's made this people his own people, his beloved people. And guess what has happened? Something has come in and sought to harm that. Enemies from out and enemies from within. Sin and armies. And his anger and jealousy, they show the intensity of his love for them and that he's not just okay with those things destroying their relationship altogether. Right? They show the intensity of his love for his beloved, that if, if something is going to betray this love and harm this love, I couldn't be okay with that. Couldn't, God could not be loving toward them and not hate evil. He, he couldn't be loving toward them and not be jealous for them to love him the way they were designed to. He couldn't love his people and be okay with what harms them. Think about it in terms of marriage. Like if you're married, like you couldn't love your spouse well, and be okay with their infidelity. Let's take it another degree. You, you couldn't love your spouse well and be just fine with their prostitution. And yet that is the kind of language that God uses of his people and how they've treated him and his love toward them. Not just infidelity, he takes it further and says, actually you've gone farther than that. And so God couldn't be loving and be okay with that. 
He, he couldn't be loving and not hate that. And so here we have a God who, who, yeah, he's slow to anger, but there's some anger in response to all their sin and rebellion. He's jealous for them because of his intensity of his love for them. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, here's God again telling them, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image, form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's made known to them his love for them. He's made a covenant with them and they broke it, provoking his jealousy for them over and over again when they go to idols. In Psalm 78, a psalm also of Asaph, right before 79, right? What does he say in verse 58? He recalls how Israel has rebelled. He says, they provoked him to anger with their high places. That is, idolatrous places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. Israel has provoked God's anger. They've moved him to jealousy with their sin. And verse 5, it's questions, acknowledges that sin, that you are angry with us and your jealousy is burning because of our sin. They're implying some sense of confession here. And because they know that that's what's going on and the Lord is sovereign and over all that, they know that He can only stop it. I can, this is going to go forever. You can stop this. And they know that He can turn it. In verse 6, that's what they're going to ask for. Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they've devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Now this, these verses 6 and 7 are almost quoted, it seems, in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 25. And Jeremiah is very much in picture, like he's, he's picturing the situation of the Babylonians invading and destroying things and taking the people of God into exile. So again, maybe that's the original setting, but either way, this song could have been sung at that time too. In verse 6, you see the request, pour out your anger on those nations that don't know you and don't call on your name. In verse 7, he gives the reason. Here's why. They've devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. God, he's saying, God, pour out your anger here because these nations have poured out your people's blood. Now, and the play on words there is clear. Pour out your anger because they've poured out blood. He's saying, look at verses 6 and 7. Like These nations, they deserve your anger. They don't know you. They don't call upon you. They've desecrated the promised land, your people, and your temple. Pour out your anger upon them. Again, the requests that they're making are in line with God's character to judge nations who walk in their wickedness in rebellion and or, and it seems like both are at play here, against God's people. God promised Abram. He said, I'm going to bless the nations that you bless and those who are cursing you, they're going to be cursed. And here... He says, Jacob is devoured. So do something, God. This is not from a place of self-righteousness. Verse 5, I think, is an admission and confession of sin. Verse 8 goes further. Don't remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. So this appeal... Is not from a place of self-righteousness or some sense of superiority as a, as a people or as an ethnic people in, in any way at all. It's not from this place of, of something inherently more worthy about us than, than them. No, no, none of that. Knowing the character of God, 
how he's revealed himself, knowing his anger and his jealousy, what it has done for them, and it has put the spotlight clearly on their own sin. Right? When we understand and know God's holiness, what we also understand in the same time is our own sinfulness. Those always go together. Isaiah, he sees God high and lifted up, and the seraphim are crying around the throne of God, holy, 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 and the first words that come out of his mouth are, woe is me, I'm, I'm sinful. That's what you see in light of God's holiness. And so they know the character of God, and in light of the justice of God, and the anger of God over their sin, and his jealousy that comes and flows from his love, they're saying, we have sinned. Look at our iniquities. And because they know all those things about God's character and the spotlight that it puts on their sin, they're saying, give us your mercy quickly, please. They appeal to God for his compassion. They want his mercy. They know his anger and his jealousy, and they also know that he is a God who has revealed himself as compassionate and merciful, and that's what they're appealing to. And God wasn't shy about revealing that about himself either, was he? About how he loves them, and he wants to show his mercy to them and be compassionate to them. Right? He showed it when he chose them. Out of all the nations of the earth, he chose them. He wanted to reveal his mercy in and through them. He, he showed it when he redeemed them out of Egypt and, and brought them into the promised land. He's showing his mercy and compassion. That people hadn't deserved him and earned the right to be his. He came to them and showed mercy to them. He shows his mercy in giving them a covenant, a gracious covenant for them to live in. He gives them his mercy when he shows them his law, which reveals, here's how it is to live with me in, in, in relationship with me. Here's what I'm like. By all of those things, by their very nature, they proclaim the mercy of God, but God proclaimed himself, right? In Exodus 34, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God, compassionate, merciful, slow to anger. Or we could look back in Deuteronomy, where he tells them that something that they're going to need to hold on to over and over again. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be his people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Not because you were in more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on, or, or in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. It was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore your fa to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Right? He loves you because he loves you. It's flowing out of his character, his nature. That's what he reveals to them. And so when they call out in 79 verse 8 and say, have mercy on us, let your compassion come speedily to meet us, they're crying that out. They're making that appeal in light of God's character too. They're not out of line with God's character there either. They are again in line with God's revealed character. And so what verses 5 through 8 are, are through and through appeals based wholly on the character of God. What they do is they take verses 1 through 4 and they take all of those complaints right to the character of God in verses 5 through 8. And they do it in song. And they do it in prayer. And this is how God's people can pray and can sing because we can know the character of our God. And we need to know the character of our God. We need to know who He is and what He is like so that we can then bring all of our how longs and all of our complaints and all of our groanings and all of our questions and all of our wrestlings to Him, to a God who is a known God. So we can know what He is like. Knowing that He is a God, we can say how long to because He hears and He's sovereign and He knows and He sees all things. And we can come to Him and we can know that when we come to Him, we know we have a God who hates 
sin. Not because of judgment like this, right? It was a little bit easier for them. They had a direct line between God's judgment and their sins because it was spelled out for them over and over again. You remember the national song that God had them sing in Deuteronomy? Right towards the end of Deuteronomy, he's like, hey, here's the song you need to sing. Cursed, 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 cursed. Like, and every one of these curses that they're singing, they're tied to actions. They're tied to sins that they're committing and living out. And so they could know, if I do this, here's what's going to happen. If I do this, this is like cursing over and over again. We, we don't know it in that same exact way. We can know it clearly, though, through Jesus and through the cross. Right? God's pulpit is the cross of Christ, where he's stating loudly and clearly on that cross, here is my hatred for sin. It is so bad. It is so ugly. I hate it so much that God himself had to die and that his blood had to be poured out. And yet, what this psalm does in light of knowing the character of God, his anger and jealousy in the midst of sin, he doesn't take it away from God and run from God. He still stays with God. And as this psalm, God's hatred of sin shouldn't drive us away from him because we also know more about the character of God as this psalmist does too. He knows there's anger and jealousy on them because of their sin, but he doesn't run away. He actually runs to him in the midst of that and says, show compassion please and we can do the same thing because the cross of Jesus also speaks not only of his judgment over sin and hatred of sin, but of his mercy. The, the cross is where God proclaims. Again, this is his pulpit. And he's proclaiming judgment on sin and compassion on sinners. He says, like, the, the cross is this magnification of the mercy of God. Here's how merciful I am that I am willing to die. And any who are brought to the place of verse 8, they're brought low, can plead for the mercy of God and their sin, knowing that in this God and in his character, his mercy abounds. It's overabounding. It's more than enough for any wicked sinner. And so whatever's going on in our lives, whatever complaints we have, whatever the situation and the atrocities that are all around us, whether we have situations like verses 1 through 4 or not, we can bring it all to God and to his character. And we can know that this is a God who in the midst of all this is all these things that he's revealed to us and he's still those things here and now. And then we can sing these things knowing this character that he hears, he knows, he's sovereign, he hates sin, but he's compassionate and merciful and we plead all those things together in prayer and in song. And that's how we can pray. All of it in line with the character of God. Now what about verses 6 and 7? Should we pray that? Is that a prayer that we should pray? Now, it's interesting in verses 6 and 7 that these are hard words on the nations, but probably, like, if we were in this situation, would be some of the most natural things that would come up. Like, we're seeing all this atrocity. God, do something about this. Like, we have this sense, because we're made in the image of God, of justice that cries out. My kids know this. When you take their toy, they're like, stop that, because they're made in the image of God. And they know that justice, there are things that are supposed to be right, and there are things that are off. And here's what happens in verses 6 and 7. Like the psalmist sees all these things and the people of God are led not to like, let's get our spears and let's try to go take revenge. What do they do? They pray here. They don't act. And they leave it to the Lord. That's we're to do, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Like let the Lord repay. We're not taking up arms here. They take it to the Lord and they ask God to do something about it. God, you, you do something here. That's what they're doing. Right, but what else is here? Psalm 79 is thinking through, I think, a Psalm 1 type of lens where they know as they're praying these things, hey, there's two ways to live. And one way is, is cursed and one way is blessed. One way is going to perish and one way is going to find 
life in the Lord. And out of these two ways, like, we don't want to go that way. And so we're going to direct life to you. We're not just going to turn and try to find vengeance our own way or try to do things our way. We want to stay on the Psalm 1 path. And they do it out of a way that's not self-righteous, right? They're admitting their own sin. The reason is that they want God to act as, hey, they've done something to your people. They've devoured Jacob. They've laid waste your habitation. That is in line with Genesis 12, where he told Abraham, if they curse you, I'm going to curse them. That is in line with Deuteronomy, where he says, hey, I'm going to push these nations out in front of you. I'm going to be with you. And these nations, they're not going to stand a chance if I'm in your midst, because these nations are nations that need judgment too. All of these things, like you could look at many different places in the scripture and this prayer in in verse 7 is aligned with God and his purposes for his people and so what Psalm 79 is doing even in verses 6 and 7 is that the psalmist and the people of God value what God values they're aligned in their valuing that the as they're thinking through like hey you care about your people you said in Deuteronomy 7 you love us and this is happening to us and you don't like that you couldn't like that and actually love us And so would you act in light of that, God? That's what they're saying. Further, they can have some confidence, right? If they're facing the anger of God and the judgment of God for their sins, how much more can they be assured that he's going to visit the sins of nations? That he's not going to spare others as well? And so it seems that this is a way that we can pray. After all, Paul kind of prays this way. Maybe this isn't a prayer, but in Acts chapter 23, verse 3, he gets smacked and he says, God's going to smack you, right? And he gets striked and he says, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed tomb. Or we see in Revelation chapter 6, those who are killed for their witness, what do they cry out in chapter 6, verse 10? They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? It's not wrong. That's in line with the character of God. God's people can know that character and can pray in line with it without self-righteousness, without calling upon God to act in injustice, without acting themselves, but entrusting this to the Lord and acting, calling on Him and asking Him to act. And God gives the words for that natural desire of justice that flows up within them. He directs us to pray in line with His character. And, and the appeal of the Psalms are all in line with God's character, but they're also prayed for a certain sake that we see highlighted in verse 9 particularly. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins, for your name's sake. And see what's repeated there. There, Here's another recognition, though, in verse 9, of of their shortcomings, of their sin, of their rebellion. Here's another confession of sin. Atone for our sins. And and this psalm, it doesn't look inward for help and say, like, come on, Israelites, let's just get this figured out. Let's atone for sins and get this. No, he looks to God for that. God, you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to atone. You're going to have to save or it's not going to happen. He looks outward to God for help. And two times in verse 9, he prays for the sake of your name. The name of God. That represents all that God is and does. His very being. It represents God. And the psalm says, for the sake of your name, act. Do something here. He he prays with the understanding or sings with the understanding that it magnifies God's name and His greatness and glory when He helps, when He delivers, when He atones. After all, He could look back at their history and say, hey, remember when we were in a terrible situation and you acted, you delivered, you saved, and it magnified the greatness of your name. And one commentator says that Asaph wants God to make himself known as a merciful and compassionate God who can reconcile justice to mercy He's calling for both in the same psalm. 
who cannot remember his people's sins against them, and so he calls on God to make his name great in this way. And he's just looking around. He's saying God's name is attached to this place. It's attached to this people. We have verses 1 through 4 going on, and so God does something in the midst of this. And he continues these appeals. Verse 10, why? Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts which they have taunted you, O Lord. You see the same line of prayer. For the sake of your name, God. For the sake of your name. For your name to be known. The, the clear thread woven throughout Psalm 79 and is especially noticeable in these few verses here is that it's all for the sake of God's name. Hey God, you were magnified uh, in the past when you let the groans of your prisoners come before you and you showed the magnificent and power of your great name when you pulled them out of Egypt and delivered them into the promised land. Would you do that again? Remember how that made your name known on all the earth? Let's see more of that. Remember how you've delivered and atoned for their sins when they shed the, the blood of the lamb and you pulled them out, but you didn't pass over other houses? Let's do that again, God, for the sake of your name. That's the prayer that's going on here. Now, all this prayer, all the way through, is for the sake of the name of God. This is how others pray throughout the scriptures. This is how Moses prays. Look in Exodus chapter 32. The people have worshipped a golden calf. The situation is pretty dire. God wants to wipe them out. And here's what Moses prays. He implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Now what's the appeal here? Listen, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? No, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all of your land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit, inherit it forever. What's the appeal to? God, your name's attached to this. Your promises are on the line here. These are your people. You, you came to them and, and the nations know this. And, and so again, your name is on the line in the midst of what happens to them. And so relent from destroying them for the sake of your name. We see this same thing in Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. This is Elijah on Mount Carmel where he's going against, he's dueling the, the prophets of, of Baal. And listen to what he says in verse 36 and 37. He prays before the uh, sacrifice is consumed. He, he came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that all I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. What's the appeal? It's Your name's on the line here. Let them know you and how great you are in the midst of all this is going on. They think their God is God. Nah, like, don't let them get away with that. Let them know that you alone are God. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul's kind of like, whether my life or my death, if I can glorify Christ, that's my prayer. That's what I want to do. That's the way to pray. Let your will be done. Let your will be done in, in my life, on this earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come. That is how God's people pray. It is for the sake of the name and the glory of God. This is how we should pray no matter the situation. If verses 1 through 4 is going on, we should pray that way. If we're living, we should pray that way. If we're dying, pray that way. If we're, if we're dueling the prophets of Baal, which... If that comes up in your life, like pray this way, for the sake of your name. If people around you are worshiping a golden calf, pray, God, for the sake of your name, would you show them mercy? This is how God's people should pray, no matter the situation. God acts 
work, preserve, save, deliver, forgive, atone for the sake of your name. We read with the men yesterday and Saturday in the Psalm, Psalm 115, and it starts out, not to us, not to us, but to your name. Be the glory, Lord. That's the heartbeat of those who know and love God. It's not about us. It's, it's about your name and your glory and your renown throughout all the earth. And so in the midst of, of the taunts and the judgment and the groans and the preserving and the salvation and the mercy and the compassion, act for the glory of your name. Work for your name's sake. Is that how we pray? And this psalm puts those, those kinds of things on our lips that we might pray in line with that, in line with the character of God for the glory of God. And what that takes is taking us out of the center of our own thinking, where we're the center of the universe, where it's all about our kingdom come and our will be done, and said it puts God in His rightful place and says, no, it's, it's about you and your name and your kingdom come and your will be done, not my own. And that's a realization that God's people need help to keep before them. So they need songs in hard situations. They need prayers for difficult situations. That all of this we can still pray for the glory of God. And then we come to this very strange ending given verses 1 through 4. Verse 13 says, But we, your people, sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Yeah, we ended very differently than what we started, doesn't it seem? And, and God's people are directed to pray these things in line with His character for the glory of His name and to just end up here because verse 13 is true no matter what else is going on. He says, hey, we're your people. We're the sheep of your pasture. It's all yours. You, you're, the, you're the one who leads. You're the one who cares. You're the one who feeds. You deliver. You protect. You're in charge of the sheep and we're just them. And so after all, verses 1 through 4 and the, the complaints and appeals that I'm making, we're yours. You're in charge of this thing. And, and so in light of that, the responsibility and response from the people of God, from the sheep of His pasture, is no matter what the circumstance, to do what verse 13 says to do. We're your people, the sheep of your pasture. What are we to do? Give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. No matter the circumstance, give thanks no matter the circumstance, praise God. Now again, here's the people of God putting a stake in the ground saying, no matter what's going on, we're to praise God. Let's do it. We're to give thanks to God. Let's do it. This song, it directs God's people through complaints, through questions, through wrestlings, through appeals to this really odd end where we're just saying, we're your sheep, you do with us what you will, and we're going to praise your name. It's strange. But it's where God's leading. It's how he's guiding his people. That no matter what's going on, he's saying, bring it here. Drop it here. Now the, the end here is an end of entrusting everything to God. Notice that we haven't seen any situation change yet. Circumstance hasn't been altered again. Like if we're thinking about the Babylonians, they've got 70 years ahead of them. Nothing has shifted. They've got prison, captivity, hardship, difficulty if they're staying in the land. It's not easy. It's barren. They're under the thumb of a foreign nation. It's all hard. And none of that has stopped in Psalm 79 when we get to verse 13. But Psalm 79 is clear, isn't it? We will give thanks to you forever. We will recount your praise. God wants His people to put the stake in the ground and say, no matter what, we're giving you thanks. No, no matter what, we're giving you praise. And they don't do it 
as sheep who have been neglected, as sheep who have just been let wander astray, but as a God who is still sovereign over all, who dearly loves his sheep and is only bringing what would be something that would ultimately turn their back. They, they are sheep who can know the character of their God, who can know how he's been faithful to that character from the start of their history as a nation to this point when they're looking at dead bodies around them. They can know how he's faithful and they can cry out in the midst of that, we know what you are like and who you are and so be acting and working for the sake of your name. And notice that verse 13, again, it doesn't come, we don't get to the end apart from all that led up to it. They direct everything. They're singing and praying of this really hard stuff all to God. They don't avoid it. They direct it. They take it all to the Lord. And that's what God's people were to do with their how longs, their questions, their doubts, their wrestlings. They were to take them there, but here's what they're to do in verse 13. Leave them there. Entrust them to God and praise his name. Drop them before him and give thanks to him. And that's what we're to do too. In the situations we're in, no matter what it is, we're to... Take it to the Lord and, and drop it before Him and give thanks. No matter what the circumstance, we're to take it before Him and we're to praise His name. This is where it's meant to end. And we do it with a different knowledge than what Psalm 79 had. We do it knowing that how long has a definite answer, doesn't it? And we don't know the day and time, but it's coming. We know the how long because Jesus came, because He lived because he died, because he rose, and after he rose, he said, I'm going to come back. And when I come back, salvation and kingdom that I started, that you're seeing and experiencing now, you're going to receive it in full. It's not a uh, if, it's a win. We do it with the certainty that all of our prayers that flow through Psalm 79, no matter the situation, will be answered in the end. You know what you see in the end? People praising the Lord and giving thanks to his name. And they're thanking him and praising him for the judgment that he's poured out that is fully just and right, holy and good. And they praise him for the salvation, the compassion, the mercy that he's shown upon a people who didn't deserve it. That's where it ends. So take all of that to the Lord and you can entrust it to him because you know where it's going to end. And in light of those things, and in trust of that God, we're to take a memorial meal together where we say, we know he's coming back and so right now let's obey him. We take the Lord's Supper together as the people of God as a proclamation that we're saying personally I'm in Christ and that we're a family in Christ, that he has shown compassion and mercy upon us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't get our way up to this table. He died and was broken so that we might have a place here. And we take this meal with one another, no matter the circumstances that are going on, we do it together knowing he's coming again and our how long has an expiration date. And it's coming soon. And may it be soon. So let's pray as we prepare for this meal together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we think about this psalm and the circumstances surrounding the people in that time, and it's, at least initially, it's hard for us to relate. We, really probably none of us have experienced a, an invasion, a, 
a foreign army coming into our land, killing people we love, dragging people off to prison and exile, abusing and tormenting people. God, we, we've not experienced that. And Lord, we're grateful that we haven't. But Lord, it doesn't mean that we are not in the midst of a battle. It doesn't mean that we don't have an enemy that desires to destroy us and do those very things to our souls. God, we have seen your church under attack constantly. We have seen the enemy invade. We have seen those who would call themselves leaders of your people turn and teach that what is evil is good and that what is good is evil. We have seen the carnage because of it. We have seen the death of once healthy churches, Lord. We've seen the dead bodies left behind and the dead message of a false gospel. And yet, Lord, we've also seen your faithfulness. We've seen you protect your people. We've seen the remnant that you've called turn away from evil and pursue you. We've seen them teach others to do the same. And Lord, we want to be those people. We know your mercy, Lord. In its very depths, Lord, you've shown us your love for us, God, and what you did on the cross where you, the Lord of heaven's armies, came down and allowed yourself to be killed by the armies of hell for our sake, for our salvation, Lord, you did that. We've seen you once and for all conquer our greatest enemy. And Father, we can find great hope in that, and I just pray that we will. I pray that we will see your goodness and your grace and that we will have vision to see past this life and our current circumstances. God, that we will place our hope in you and in our future that's been promised because of what you've done on the cross. And Lord, we may never experience some of these atrocities, some of these things that we've read today in the psalm. But Lord, we will, all of us, if you tarry, Lord, we will experience death. We will experience, we are right now experiencing that process. And Father, we're going to need your strength. We're going to need to be reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness to your people. And I just pray that the psalm today would do that. That God, we would be aware of the enemy around us. Paul tells us that it's not flesh and blood. It's the powers and the principalities and the dark forces who have set their faces against you and your people. God, help us to be beacons of light and agents of love in this world where people desperately need to see it. Help us to live and find our identity from the inside and not from the outside, Lord. Help us not to fear. God, help us just to move forward in faith, to be grateful in all circumstances, whether they be good or bad, and to know ultimately, God, that you are king 
and that you have won. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.